This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Navigating the Christian life in a secular world will inevitably stir questions in the lives of thoughtful believers. In Ask Pastor John, Tony Ranke summarizes and organizes 10 years of the most insightful and popular episodes of the Ask Pastor John podcast, allowing readers to quickly and systematically access Piper's insights on hundreds of topics, including Bible reading, dating, social media, mental health, and more. Pick up a copy of Ask Pastor John wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Books, presenting The Power of Christian Contentment, a book by Andrew Davis on finding deeper, richer, Christ-centered joy. Learn more at bakerbookhouse.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a panel discussion on loving Jesus in a secular age. The panelists are Tim Keller, Brett McCracken, and Jen Michelle. I served as the moderator. It was recorded at our 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. My name is Colin Hansen. I'm the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. Been been privileged to serve in this position for the last um, almost 10 years, since 2010. Secularism is so pervasive today that we lack context for even understanding what's changed, what's changed in our culture, what's changed in our world. But in his 2007 book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor gives a particularly powerful illustration that I've found consistently helps to communicate what has changed in this world as it pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this book, he explains why you could take for granted 500 years ago that everyone believed in God and why today it's an exception to believe in God that the fight for faith is fraught in our secular age. He argues that this secular age which exalts the self sees the heart of the Christian gospel as a perverse sickness. Indeed, a perverse sickness. And he explains it this way. This is how our culture views Jesus and the gospel. And hence, what was for a long time and remains for many the heart of Christian piety and devotion, love and gratitude at the suffering and sacrifice of Christ, seems incomprehensible or even repellent and frightening to many. To celebrate such a terrible act of violence as a crucifixion, to make this the center of your religion, you have to be sick. You have to be perversely attached to self-mutilation because it assuages your self-hatred or calms your fears of healthy self-affirmation. You are elevating self-punishment, which liberating humanism wants to banish as a pathology to the rank of the numinous. That's what we're talking about here with our secular age and how it views Jesus. We're going to talk about why we still celebrate the crucifixion, why we still celebrate that, why we love Jesus in our secular age of supposedly liberating humanism. Let's talk then, introduce our different panelists, starting on the end here. Brett McCracken, one of my colleagues, a senior editor of the Gospel Coalition and author of Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. Also, Gray Matters, Navigating the Space Between Legalism and Liberty. And finally, Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide. Brett lives in Santa Ana, California. He's an elder at Southlands Church. And uh, Brett, and we'll also introduce Jen here, contributed to the book, Our Secular Age, 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor, which I'd encourage you to pick up in our bookstore here today. Next, we turn to Jen Pollock-Michelle, lives in Toronto with her family. She's the author of Surprised by Paradox, your brand new book, right? Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. 
Also, keeping place, reflections on the meaning of home, she published in 2017, and teach us to want, longing, ambition, and the life of faith, which came out with University Press in 2014. I suppose we should also introduce Tim. Tim Keller is founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church uh, in Manhattan, chairman of Redeemer City to City, and vice president of the Gospel Coalition, a, a position that he's held for our entire history at TGC, authored numerous books. I think the most relevant one, and one that I probably recommend more than any other, is Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. That's the one that's most explicitly relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. So Tim, let's start there. Let's start with Making Sense of God. You write this, in the whole history of the world, there is only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got enormous numbers of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. What then makes Jesus so particularly compelling, even in our secular age? Well, maybe Philippians 2, because Philippians 2 says, um, being in very nature God, uh, Jesus did not uh, hold on to his equality with God, but emptied himself and became a servant and died for us. what a lot of commentators will say, including, by the way, Don Carson, our esteemed friend, is, you, is when it says, being in very nature God, right? now, he, he says that's actually a causative. So if you say, being a nice guy, he helped a little lady across the street, is another way of saying, because he was a nice guy, he helped a little lady across the street. Do you realize what, how crazy it is to say, because he was God, he gave up his privilege? Mm. Which is another way of saying there's something in the very nature of God that does not seek power in a linear way, like, okay, I see power, and the way to get power is just to go get power. Rather, you empty yourself of your privilege and power, and uh, you uh, become a servant, and you really do set aside your power in order to serve. And on the other side of that is a new kind of power, but it's completely, it's cruciform power. And uh, there is no other religion that's got a God like that. And what I've done is I've picked up you know, the way you reach any culture is you pick up one of their narratives that something that they really are after, and that is uh, how do we, how do we uh, overcome uh, oppression and how do we uh, serve other people and how do we make, uh, you know, it's a, and basically what you're saying with Philippians 2 is what you're looking for is a kind of power that actually the world doesn't have that Christ shows. I think there's all sorts of ways in which Christ then becomes the thing that, Christ is the thing any culture wants. The Greeks want wisdom, the Jews want power. I don't know, modern people want uh, uh, some kind of, they, they, they want to see Pleasure. people with privilege, well, they want to see people with privilege give up their privilege. You, in every, every situation, you are saying, the way you reach the culture is saying, what you want is great, but you're looking in the wrong place, it's in Christ. So I, Christ has got plenty to offer a secular culture. Wouldn't you say, though, in some ways, the appeal of Christ, in, even in this supposedly secular age, is in part because of the influence of Jesus in the last 2,000 years. I don't think we can necessarily take for granted that that vision of power that you articulated there would actually be compelling to people, because it's certainly not a universal view no. of power throughout time. No, you're not, this is not going to be something you go to China, which is a pre-Christian country, hopefully. It will become a Christian country. But, I mean, it's a pre-Christian country. No, this is not the sort of thing people would immediately say, oh, isn't that wonderful? You're right. What you're actually taking is you're taking the emphasis on human rights, the emphasis on serving the poor is, is a Christian idea. It did not arise elsewhere. There are scholars, by the way, right now that are making that case. And it's a leftover from, their, from the Christian past. And so, weirdly enough, it's a way of, of, to evangelize secular people. You're reconnecting with something that they, an idea they got from Christianity, which now seems like common sense. But that's okay, because that's basically what you do in every culture. Common sense, in this case, being common grace. Well, that, yeah, it, it is really common grace, yes. Actually, I think you have to connect with common grace in every culture, but that's the form we have here. Okay. Jen, tell us a little bit about your context, what secularism looks like in your context, and... What is appealing about Jesus where you are? I live in Toronto, and just to give you an example, sorry if I'm repeating this if you were at an earlier session, but um, 
one of our pastors who's actually planting a new church has had a really difficult time locating in the city because people are actually very hostile to a church being in their neighborhood. It's not just that Christianity is something that they don't understand. It's something that they don't want. They're hostile um, to the message of traditional Orthodox Christianity because of its impingement on people's freedoms. Mm. And I think that we really have to talk about how the burden, that there are burdens of individual individualism and autonomy, you know, that we think that that's sort of going to be the way that we sort of reach nirvana or um, we self-actualize. But you know what, if I'm in charge of um, my happiness, if my life is completely in my control, that's only good so in so far as I can control it. Um, so something that's, I think, really compelling about Christianity is joy and hope in the midst of suffering. Um, and I think our pastor just recently you shared that, that, you know, the Christian testimony in an exilic condition is um, hope in suffering. It's not that we um, achieve our greatest happiness insofar as we have uh, total freedom, because you know what? We're not free to ward off suffering. We're not free to guarantee the outcomes of our life. We're free to surrender to a God who is good and does good. I want all of you to answer this next question. I'm just going to continue to build on this theme. Uh, Brett, you talk about this in your book, Uncomfortable. Tim, this is actually one of your more viral comments that in a secular age, people are still looking for community. But they cannot possibly find true community under the conditions in which they're seeking it with unfettered freedom, no accountability. Talk about that, Brett, in the context of the local church, and we'll build our way backward here. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a self-defeating kind of contradiction because on one hand, people do want community and especially in a digital disembodied age where we do increasingly live isolated from each other and um, you know, there's a rising loneliness epidemic that's a real thing in this culture. So I think the longing for community is real, but that comes with this simultaneous elevation of total autonomy and freedom and consumerism where the expectation is everything should be on my terms and I should be able to have community, but only insofar as it meets me where I'm at, affirms me where I'm at, kind of, you know, just affirms me with whatever I want from it, and it isn't holding me accountable to something that might be uncomfortable. Hence why I wrote the book, Uncomfortable, calling people to <laughs> lean into the challenge of actually giving yourself to community in a way that puts that consumer expectation aside and says, I do want to be challenged. I don't just want to be affirmed. The, the blessing of community, the actual benefit of being around people is that you have mirrors that can sharpen you and point out things about yourself, that you, areas you need to grow in and that you might not be able to see. And God gives us this gift of community. The church is a gift for our sanctification if we're willing to give ourselves to it without the kind of string attached of being able to opt out when it, doesn't, when it stops working for us or when it gets difficult or uncomfortable. So I think challenging that autonomy and that, that idea that it all, it's all just about what makes you happy and what enhances your life. Like church is going to stop enhancing your life at various points. Like there's going to be times where it maybe does and times where it doesn't. And we can't just have this expectation of leaving the minute it, it stops working for us. And I don't see how you can have community without accountability. I want to talk more about that. Jen, how, what does that look like in your church context, in your neighborhood, with people interacting with your kids? What does that look like? Well, I was just, uh, you know, I was thinking about Wendell Berry and his essay, Sex, Economy, Freedom, yeah. Community, where he talks about, you know, um, the constraints of community that we're, we so, we want to throw those off, but those are for our flourishing. You know, the constraints of um, a covenant relationship and marriage, the constraints um, that are imposed as you're a parent and you give up your freedom to drive your children to soccer <laughs> and many other things, get up in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, you know, um, and I think that it's it's amazing as Christians to be able to to tap into that modern longing for community and remind people of the paradox, if, if I can, of of um, embodied community. That embodied community is a constraint, but a constraint for human flourishing, and we have to sort of flesh that out for people. A really interesting article. Yeah. 
sorry for the pun. Um, interesting articles, the sex, re sex recession in the Atlantic, yeah. December 2018, and um, really talking about how people just have the inability right now um, to form community. And I think the church has a really important invitation in that. More of ways that we can show the work of Christ in compelling ways that are going to appeal to our culture. I think that's one of the mind sh mindset shifts that we have to affect is that we're under siege all the time and we're just trying on the defensive constantly as opposed to that we have this incredible gospel. We have this savior who is the exact answer, maybe not for the questions that they're asking, but what they truly want deep down beneath. How do people respond, though, Tim, when you talk about community and when you make that challenge? I know you've, you've often pointed that specifically at some of our younger generations, that I hear all this talk about community, but not seemingly a willingness to do what's necessary to achieve it. Well, I, I, I don't think it's all that compelling to talk to non-Christians about community and accountability. I'd rather, use, I'd rather talk about freedom and love. Okay. So uh, one thing that always gets people going is... Um, uh, I, I, years ago in a John Stott book, I forget which one it was, Contemporary Christian by John Stott, he, he, uh, he brings out a, an interview that he read in Le Monde. He obviously can read French and I can't. Uh, and uh, it was an interview with Francois Sagan, who was a, a woman who was a, a pretty prominent French novelist, secular intellectual. Uh, and one of the things they asked her, what was your great uh, goal in life? And she says, my greatest goal in life was freedom. I want to be, I want to live a free life. I want to be a free woman. And then the question was, uh, have you achieved that? Have you lived a free life? And she says, well, she says, you can't be free when you're in love, but fortunately you're not always in love. <laughs> hmm. Now, what she was admitting, and John Stott brought that right out, what she was admitting was that the secular definition of freedom is absolutely antithetical to a love relationship. Because even, even if you're in love, it means, for example, you can't just go out of town on the weekend without telling the other person. The other person said, well, that's not helpful for me, uh-oh. Um, <clears throat> and she admitted that, that a love relationship is antithetical to freedom. So she had a definition, but it's actually the secular definition of freedom, which is an absence of restraints on my life unless I'm harming you. Well, yeah, okay, fine, not harming you, but how about a, a freedom that is actually, how about redefining freedom in a way that actually enhances love relationships instead of undermines them? And uh, when I talk about that and I said, so what's your definition of freedom? And secular people will give me some answer that actually fits in with Francois Sagan. I said, well, good luck on relationships. Um, and then I said, let's, let's work on a different definition. And they're with me on that. If you hit community accountability, I think they, their eyes start to glaze over. They feel like, oh, I go to these, I, I have friends who we just accept each other. And uh, even there, you can say, define friendship. But the point is, it's really clear that even a romantic relationship does not work on the, basic, the basis of, of secular freedom. And so that's where I usually find a, a kind of pinch point with, with non-Christians. What do you do though, Tim, when we have a situation like what Jen is laying out here where I'm not sure romantic love is a priority for as many people anymore. Okay, fine. Until, until, until you, <laughs> listen, until, until you're so lonely yeah. that you, you're, you're open to changing your understanding of freedom. She wasn't. Francois Sagan got to the end of her life because she was also, you know, she basically, I don't know. I mean, she never got there. And until people get there, there isn't anything you can say. I mean, ultimately, God's got to work on the heart, set things up providentially so that they realize my, right, it's not working. But there's plenty of people that have these secular definitions that will, they're already undermining their happiness. But if they don't want to admit that they're unhappy or if they, they just harden themselves and say, hey, it's, it's better to be uh, alone than to be stuck in all these love relationships, if that's how they work it out, it's a little bit like, uh, it's a bit like, uh, oh, I don't know, I mean, they, they, uh, it's like the disillusioned sensible man in, yes. in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's chapter on hope, where you, you kill the part of the heart that really wanted to be happy and really wanted love, and then you say, I'm a sophisticated person that, that stopped crying after the moon. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I'll even talk about that and say, you know, Martin Heidegger said the difference between an animal 
and a human being is the animal just wants to survive and the human being wants love and meaning. And I said, if, if in order to be a sophisticated person, you're killing the part of your heart that makes you a human being and not an animal, well, that's your lookout. I'm almost wondering if um, part of the task now, a new task in the secular age, is actually kind of reminding, awakening those longings in people, not assuming that they even have a longing for connection and love, um, but, rem- but they do, but because of course they're made in the image of, right. of a, God, a triune God. And so mm-hmm. just somehow sort of tapping into that or giving them um, an, a vision for that that would awaken a longing in them, a longing that then could not be consoled or satisfied in anything yeah. else. Yeah. It might sleep deep. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I don't know if as Alan Noble here, in Alan's book, Disruptive Witness, says that uh, stories and suffering, in other words, hmm. Sometimes people get pulled into a story, it could be a book or a movie, that arouses a desire for the thing and they realize they don't have the, they don't have the, uh, the, they, they don't have the worldview for it, yet they want it. And the other thing is sometimes suffering. Something comes into your life and uh, um, the, uh, I mean, I, my, my niece just died and most of, a lot of her family are not sure where their faith is, and, uh, but she was an ardent Christian and it was, good to show up uh, and do a funeral and talk about how happy she was in spite of the fact she had a terribly deteriorating uh, uh, physical condition. And my guess is that that they they were in grief, but a lot of them probably were um, wondering whether, do I have the worldview to be able to handle death uh, the way she did? So I think trouble and stories are two ways that that the deep sleeping things that Jen was talking about there could be awakened. Couldn't our communities and our marriages also do that? Of how we love one another, awaken that desire of love? What do you think, Brett? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think people, like I said earlier, like people are living in these more um, isolated bubbles of just reinforced confirmation bias and whatnot. And so I think when they encounter a community um, like a church of people who are very different from one another. Um, like I love churches where it's just this crazy melting pot Molly crew of people from all walks of life who have no business being together. Like by the rules of our contemporary society, there's no, um, nothing that would bring them together as be increasingly kind of fragment. So I think there is a powerful witness that kind of shakes people up a little bit and causes them to take notice and just ask questions about what is it that unifies that community. Now, Sadly, a lot of Christians today aren't leaning into that challenge of kind of diversity and being this melting pot across all the boundaries, and we're just kind of following secularism in, um, yeah, just fragmenting and being divisive. So we're losing, I think, an opportunity to kind of be a disruptive witness, to use Alan Noble's term, in a secular age. So help me to understand whether or not this aspect of Jesus' teaching, which we've seen come up, several times in already the plenary talks. Um, is this a bridge or is this just straight up confrontation? So we know that in whether we call it expressive individualism, in our age of authenticity, various different ways to describe, that we're told to be able to find ourselves, to find our identity, to find meaning and purpose in life. We need to look inside ourselves. But Jesus' teaching could not be more dif- different there. He tells us, unless you lose your life for the sake of me and for the sake of the gospel, You'll never find it. We did the new book, Lost and Found, to try to give examples of stories with a lot of suffering so that people to be able to connect that. Um, it, do we just have to confront a secular age with that teaching? Or is there a bridge that can be j- kind of built between those two things? What do you think, Brett? I, um, I just saw the movie Us. I don't know if anyone has seen, seen Us. It's by the director of Get Out, and it's a, it's a horror film. But horror films often are the best at capturing the anxieties of any given zeitgeist moment. Uh, There's a great tradition of horror movies for doing that. And us, there's a scene where a character, the whole movie is about like doubles, doppelgangers, and the idea of like you're, you're your own worst enemy. And there's a family that kind of has this identical family that's like stalking them. But at the beginning of, at the beginning of the movie, a character, um, kind of the plot is set in motion when this little girl wanders into a, a hall of mirrors at a fun house and there's this neon sign 
on top of it that says find yourself and I just thought like this this film is capturing the horror of the find yourself mentality as if you know it's pitched as kind of the a glorious thing like just look within find yourself follow your heart but it's it's a horror show like when, when push comes to shove like it, you are not the answer to your anxieties and the, the deep longings of your heart. You can't just look within for that. And I think that film captures what maybe people ultimately are feeling with that philosophy. It's a dead end to look within. I was going to mention that I was at a New York Times book review event in Toronto, and they sent us home with tote bags that says, the truth has a voice. I was like, what? You know, the New York Times. John 1-1. Right, exactly, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that there is sort of an anxiety right now uh, culturally um, where we're sort of saying, wow, we've, we've located truth um, in the interior and in the subjective, but gosh, that sort of fails us when we need stories that tell the truth about what's happening in the political landscape, for example. Now, I'm not, you know, suggesting, I'm not saying the New York Times has, um, you know, that they tell the truth better than other media organizations, but I think it's interesting to hear them kind of wanting to sort of reclaim something objective about truth. What do you think, Tim, with that specific question? Are we just straight up confronting with those words of Jesus? Is there a bridge to be built there? How do we, how do we bring that truth to bear on a secular age that, where it seems like that would be so antithetical to how people see the world? Well, there's a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of different ways to um, um, go. I mean, Jen's already just referred to one. It's if you really do say truth is subjective, you'd find truth inside then you've got absolutely no ability then to ground your, uh, your calls to justice. You've got nothing to, to build on. Um, because if uh, truth is something I find in my heart, and therefore you shouldn't build the wall to keep out the suffering immigrants, then uh, what if somebody says, well, I didn't find that truth in my heart. I think what I find in my heart is build the wall. Yeah. So why should your heart take um, you know, precedence over my heart. And then we go, oh, well, you know, you've actually just destroyed your ability to talk about any moral obligation at all. That's a kind of, that's a nastier way to go at it, just to, just, I think. It's a way of just hitting them over the head and say, you've got no basis for making moral judgments and you've got no basis for uh, uh, doing justice, even though you're yelling about justice all the time. I think another way to go would be to say uh, the, if people are honest about going inside, that our insides are incoherent, yes. that it's saying different things, um, that um, the, uh, our, 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 th our desires do not line up yes. and they change terribly and that we, you actually have to connect and you are. In fact, everybody is connecting to something outside in order to give yourself some sense of self and worth. And, and, and go at it that way. Also, by the way, Augustine does, Augustine at one point says that, uh, that uh, in some ways God is, is more remote than anything outside, and yet on the other hand, he actually says, he's, uh, you are more inward than my inmost self. He's further, he's further in the center of you than even your own feelings. And so there is some sense in which by going outside, to find him through his word and revelation, you are going to eventually discover who you are. And you have to make that case that Christianity is not self-renunciation where you just beat yourself down, but it's not self-aggrandizement or self-actualization in which you are, in a sense, closed to the other. You're closed to anything outside. You're creating yourself. Instead, it's self-transformation. It's by going outside to find yourself on the inside. It's just... It's just that the, the Christian approach to identity, I think, is more nuanced. It's more exciting. It actually includes most of what the secular world wants, but enhances it. So it's not just, see, I guess your question is, is it just saying, you know, lose yourself to find yourself, follow Christ, and everything about going inside is wrong? Not if you read the confessions. I mean, look at, look at Augustine's confessions. There's, he has to go inside. And also, there's this guy named John Calvin. <laughs> 
who says in the, in the very, very beginning of his institutes that your knowledge of yourself and your knowledge of God increase or decrease together. That you can't know God unless you start to see who you really are. Otherwise, you're not going to see you're a sinner. You can't know, uh, on the other hand, you can't know yourself without it driving you more toward God. And that, that means this knowledge of God, the knowledge of yourself go up and down together. Again, that's very modern. It's a, it's a way of saying self-knowledge, knowing who you really are, uh, happens as you get to know God. The deeper you know God, the deeper you'll know yourself. So there's all sorts of ways of saying we can include your concerns without, with at the same time, undermining the idolatry of the self that you set up. I would emphasize also what we tried to do on this very question with the book Lost and Found is to do the stories and the suffering. That seems a way to be able to illustrate that from various different perspectives. Uh, One of the more helpful books, more thought-provoking books that I've read recently is Stephen Smith's Pagans and Christians in the City. Any of you seen that one yet? It's, it's a book that I have that I know I'm supposed to read, and now you're making me feel even more guilty. <laughs> okay, that was the goal. It's right there. I know right where it is on the shelf, on the stack. All right, so I'll direct the question to Jen then. Okay, all right. If Tim hasn't read it, I haven't read it. <laughs> but one thing I really appreciate about you read A Secular Age yes. after I talked to you about that. So How many you... years did that take? <laughs> I'm happy to say it only took me like four months. Hey, all right. Yeah. That's really pretty good. <laughs> that was on a pretty rigorous schedule. Except, <laughs> except what did it do to your marriage? I mean, <laughs> I have my husband to blame for reading our secular age. He read Grit, challenged me to do a hard yes. thing, and Charles Taylor was my hard thing. Brilliant. May a Are thousand you? other people. But he, he is Canadian, so you're Canadian. <laughs> He's American, but a pretty smart guy. Okay. No, I meant Charles true. Taylor. Oh, okay. Canadian. Oh, that's right. Yes. Charles Taylor Another reason to yes. read Taylor. <laughs> All right, so Stephen Smith argues that today's secular West marks a return to its pagan roots. That's the basic thesis there. He defines paganism this way. Paganism is this worldly religion, religion that is focused on these circumstances in this world. He explains then that Christianity threatened the early Roman Empire with its appeals to eternal life. That was what made Christianity a threat in the early in the early um, Roman or the, in that Roman Empire in the early church. Then, as now, I think it's appealing for Christians in that atmosphere to then present Jesus as the key to experiencing our best life now. That then becomes the temptation in secular in secularity. There's secularism that harkens back to this kind of paganism. It says a way of sort of benefiting this culture. But Jen, then, how do we talk about human flourishing? That's something that's a, a buzzword. It's been that way for a long time. How do we talk about human flourishing, that Jesus is the ultimate means to our true human flourishing with our neighbors here and now, when Jesus is calling us to experience this fullness of life, but only in the context of eternal life? It's going to be a hard sell. You know, um, people are going to think that you believe in unicorns, which is generally now how I think about it in Toronto when I say that I believe in the resurrected Christ and in a life to come. Um, you know, Charles Taylor essentially says we can't reduce the burden of the gospel. You know, that at the end of the day, there is this irreducible tension between my will be done and thy will be done. But I think that to recover from the biblical narrative, the idea that when we say thy will be done, it's not, oh, and it's really going to, it's going to be awful, you know, but when we say thy will be done, you know, when, when Moses said, you know, here are the commands of the Lord and there are means for you to live, you know, and when Jesus said, um, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. Now we have to define that. We have to expand a vision for that. That is beyond on the here and the now, but I think one of the things, one of the challenges for the church is that in reaction to my best life now, we say sometimes, well, you kind of get your worst life now, but, but best life later, you know, <laughs> and um, that's not a super compelling message, and I don't think it's even faithful to the biblical witness, so we're this idea that um, thy will be done is my best life now and later. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm guaranteeing certain outcomes for my life, but I, no one can, whether you believe in Christ or not. Um, I'm as vulnerable to suffering as anyone else, 
boy, I'd rather be walking with Jesus in a cancer diagnosis than without him. Amen. Yeah, that's one thing I think as we continue to try to emphasize a shift in posture, one that's a little bit more just like understanding the hope that we have in a secular age, it's significant to me to recognize something like suffering. It's not a coincidence we keep coming back to that theme. There are ways to suffer particularly as a Christian, and Jesus talks about those things specifically for him, that we will suffer for him. That's that emphasis that he gives us in a number of different places. But I think it's significant that you will not suffer, you're not going to suffer less by abandoning Christianity. You'll only abandon any reason or hope within that suffering. Um, I I talked with a a friend recently in his church where there were, somebody had abandoned the faith after suffering many different things. And it was, there was some sort of thought in his head that somehow I can get out of this or that my faith is the problem. But again, by turning away from Jesus, it didn't make him suffer less. It just meant there was no then redemptive hope and purpose in that suffering. Let me refocus, though, Tim, on the specific issue of paganism as this worldly religion. How do we sort of in a secular age talk about that dynamic interplay between our best life now, this worldly religion, and ultimately eternal life that Jesus continually calls us toward? Uh, I have two responses to that. One... um is I don't think it's a, it can't be a simple return. I mean, there, it's partly right, I think, for him to say, we've gone back to paganism. But let me just give you, but, but we're a post-Christian, not yeah, a pre-Christian right. a society. So let me just give you one quick reason why I'm only partly there. Why, why it's actually more, it's more complicated. It's not quite right to simply say, well, we just have to reproduce what the early church did with the Roman Empire. But that, again, that was pre-Christian. So let me give you an example is uh, read Kyle Sm- uh, Harper's uh, book, Sex, uh, Shame, From Shame to Sin. It's about sex ethics and how Roman world was changed by the Christian revolutionary sex ethic. Uh, the, the pagan sex ethic was that when you were married, the husband was expected to have sex with anybody he wanted to. could have sex with domestics, with prostitutes, no problem. The wife could not have sex with anybody else because... In a sense, you know, she had to be faithful to him. Well, he had to know who the children were from. And, and basically, it was a, uh, a sex ethic that was tied to the social order. And in the social order, the men had all the power. Along comes Paul. 1 Corinthians 7 says the most astounding thing at, at that point in history yeah. about sexuality. He says, the wife's body is not hers, but the husband's. But then it says the husband's body is not his, but the wife's. Right. And if you're going to have sex or not have sex, it has to be by mutual consent. What? And also, away goes the double standard completely. In every way, the way the double standard goes away completely. And so it's sex only between a man and woman in marriage. And uh, we still have that. The idea of consent is a Christian idea. Uh, the first uh, Christian emperor, Theodosius or whatever, 428 or something like that, was the first emperor to come along and make a law that said no woman can ha- could be forced to have sex against her will, which was a Christian idea. So what happens is we've got a lot of Christian ideas that are leavening paganism, that, but they're, they're taken without attribution. That is to say, nobody wants to say we got them from Christianity. Mm. And so in some ways, Christianity is not quite as attractive as it was back then. Mm. The whole idea of universal benevolence, helping all the poor, it's a Christian idea. The whole idea of that kind of charity. And so uh, it's a paganism with all these kind of Christian ideas, which creates a very weird relationship to uh, secular culture that was really a little different than pagan culture. I just got to say that. Um, but what the, the other part well, of Well, I think just the... Um, it was really helpful for me to understand the nature of persecution oh. within paganism. So I think one thing that that stokes a lot of the opposition to us in a secular age is that we're telling people that we live by, we're calling them to and saying that we live for a higher order, for something that they well, can't see. Yeah, I, I was going to say the second, I remember I had two things to say. <laughs> I gave you too some long time. On the first one. <laughs> no, the second thing was Lewis's hope. Basically, St. Augustine just found nothing was making him happy. He said, if I can just get to Carthage, then I'll be happy and I get in the inner circle now, now I need to get to Rome, then I need to get to Milan, and every point he is not happy. Then he reads Cicero's Hortensius, 
which is basically saying you're never going to be happy in this life. It's, a, it's, a, it's just not going to happen. And that the, the pagan idea that if you just have enough sex, drugs, and rock and roll or, or whatever they had back then, uh, you'll be happy. And then that threw Augustine first into philosophy and finally into Christianity, which said, oh, we're made for something besides this world and our hearts are restless till we find a rest in thee. I do think you can do what Lewis says to everybody and say, you will find eventually that the things that you think will make you happy will not. And you will know eventually that you are not having your best life now. And you either are going to kill that part of the heart that wants more or you're going to turn to God. So I, I think that worked back for Augustine in the pagan world. I think it works for us now. I mean, you still can say that now. I would just add the, with the whole conversation of the this worldly orientation, I also think we're, we're in a moment where it's a this moment orientation. Like it's a, we're in a very presentist paradigm. There's a book that came out a few years ago called Present Shock by Douglas Rushkoff talking about this. Everything has collapsed to the now and like social media perpetuates it. It's all about like, Twitter is like, what's happening now? What's trending now? If you're not in the conversation now, you're irrelevant. And so there's a burden that comes with that and this pressure to like, you know, be relevant now. We have to be understanding what's happening. And there's, there's a disconnection from past, from future, from this higher order. And so I think that's a way that we can be a, a refreshing witness in this world that is feeling burdened by the presentist, this now orientation. Um, it's, it's actually freeing to kind of see your little life as part of a bigger, ancient, eternal story. So connectedness to the past, to the future, seeing ourselves as members of a kingdom that will outlive, you know, this universe, let alone this five-minute period of scrolling social media. I think that's, that's a way that we can be different in a noticeable, refreshing way. Um, uh, Part of what we deal with in a secular age is not only what the Bible teaches, not only who Jesus is and how he reveals himself to us in his word, but also how Christians portray him, uh, how we portray him, certainly, but how the church is then perceived. Tim, let me take you to a place in Center Church where you write, if the Christian faith is to have any impact on culture, the time must come when it is widely known that secularism tends to make people selfish, while general religion and traditional morality make people tribal, concerned mainly for their own. But the Christian gospel turns people away from both their selfishness and their self-righteousness to serve others in the way that Jesus gave himself for his enemies. To that I'd say amen, and make sure you pick up a copy of Center Church and read all about that. How, though, I don't think that's how... Christianity is perceived in this context. So how do we break Jesus away from his popular conception as a convenient political prop for Christians? Is there any way to seize attention for the watching world in our secular age for this compelling and loving character of Jesus who transcends and obliterates these secular ages divides? That's for you, Tim. You need me to give you more time? I mean, no, I'll be really short. We just, we're going to have to do our job. We are going to have to be better than we... We just have to do what, what the Bible calls us to do, to love our neighbor. But then if you're really going to have the culture actually notice it, probably God will just have to do something in his providence like uh, the, the early Christians were despised, but Rodney Stark tells you in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that when the plagues came along, the urban plagues basically... Uh, the, because of a fear of contagion, people just left uh, sick and dying family members and just got out of town, and the Christians stayed. And they, uh, they, they, they habitually stayed. They became famous for staying, uh, took, taking care of people, in many cases dying. Um, and uh, Rodney Stark just says that after that, there was a... The, the reputation began to say, wait, these Christians, they really they care about the poor... Uh, they're not afraid of death. Uh, now, I don't know whether we have a problem like that shows up and we would have the same moral character. I don't know. But generally speaking, I think I feel like in, in pockets we can be well known for our good deeds and our love. Uh, but probably if the culture is going to see it, we just have to do our do, be who we are and do our job and let God decide 
whether he's going to show the culture through some kind of intervention. In the past, that's what's happened. I don't think you can engineer that. What do you think, Jen? Brett? Brett. <laughs> um, I was just going to... So I was at my barber last week, and so the, the barber shop I go to in L.A. is like a stereotypical, like, L.A., like, just this big muscle, you know, tattooed Hispanic barber, and um, he was giving me my haircut, and I was talking to him, and he was... I, it came up that I was an editor for something called the Gospel Coalition, and he was like, oh, are you a Christian? Are you religious? And we got to talking, and he's, a, he's agnostic. He, he grew up in Seventh-day Adventist church, but now he's an agnostic. So he says, I don't know what I think about God, um, but I will say this, and this is what was interesting to me. He says, I, don't, I wouldn't want God and Christianity removed from politics or government. He said, it would just be chaos. Like, our world would be worse for that. And so just the fact that he observed that as, a, as an agnostic, and I think that that gets to the idea that Christians at their best are this, this leavening kind of salt and light presence in, in every sphere, politics, medicine, hospitals, and we always have been. So to the extent that we keep doing that, I think people will keep noticing it and, and have at least a, an interest in that. Maybe you could speak to it. Well, you can say whatever you want, Jen, but you could also speak to this issue cross-border. Yes. As an American in Canada, where mm -hmm. all these things, they look very different on the other side of the border, yet everything bleeds north as well. I mean, a huge difference in Canada is that um, people don't assume that the kingdom is coming by in the next political election. And, um, <laughs> sorry, or the past one. <laughs> We've had such a great track record so far. With I know, those hopes. Right. Next time, cross your fingers, right? So I just wonder, you know, if we can return to um, teaching the kingdom, you know, and not just um, the truth of the kingdom, but the way of the kingdom. And I really appreciated Eugene Peterson's book, um, Jesus is the Way. Because often, you know, evangelicals seize on the idea that, you know, Jesus is the truth. We love to talk about Jesus being the truth. But Jesus is the way, that it's not just what Jesus says, but it's how he gets his work done that we are to emulate as well. And so I think to look at the narrative of the gospel is to realize that the kingdom came through suffering and through death. And um, that doesn't really make sense when we think about seizing political power and, you know, having cultural gravitas, you know, when as long as we have to be the majority and we think of that being the way the kingdom is coming, I think we sort of miss the, the beauty of the gospel and really the mystery and the miracle of it. Um, the fact that it could look as vulnerable as a seed. And yet this is exactly the metaphor for um, the kingdom, that it comes in surprising ways. Here's a question though, which side is more messianic now? in their politics. I, I, years ago for Books and Culture, I reviewed a book on the American presidency by a, by a presidential scholar, and he talked about how through the 20th century, our expectations of the presidency have expanded beyond comprehension, that essentially that office will crush any human being who aspires to it and earns it. The expectations are simply impossible. And as we've seen these messianic expectations from Christians for politics, it might even be surpassed by people outside of faith uh, who ascribe to a secular worldview. Is that a, a bubble that might burst for those expectations that could be an avenue to be able to, to show the love of Christ and the kingdom of God in that atmosphere? <laughs> we start turning to audience members if somebody doesn't jump in here. <laughs> I mean, you can say no. You can say no. I mean, I wonder if it, it returns to our conversation about longings, okay. you know, yeah. the longings of the human heart for a righteous king, you know, for a messiah, for um, a kingdom, um, for the government to be on the shoulders of the only shoulders broad enough to carry it, you know, and if um, those longings are on both sides of the political conversation and we have an opportunity to say, you're not going to find that in your next presidential candidate but um, I get to tell you a better story. Yeah, I, I amen to that, though I probably should have answered my own question by saying I don't imagine we'll have a more messianic election than 2008, and we appear not to have learned any of those lessons in our culture in a secular age. So 
I don't know. We'll have to see. Perhaps the Lord will reveal it. Anyone else want to jump in on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the reason why politics has been elevated to this messianic kind of, because we're in a post-Christian context, and it's filling the void of religion for a lot of people, and even a lot of ostensibly religious people, Christians, who would call themselves a Christian, if they were honest with themselves, politics has kind of mm-hmm. become the new driving passion Um where their longings for justice and things like that are given voice. Channeled, yeah. um, and so, yeah, I think, I think the, everyone does long for justice, and people want, they feel that, and politics, on whatever side you're at, gives you kind of a community, gives you a purpose, gives you meaning uh, in that direction. So even my barber, to go back to the barber, mm-hmm. um, he, was, he was going off about the Jesse Smollett situation, and he was just like, it's so unjust. Like, we just have to have justice in, the, in this situation. And it just struck me like, yeah, like people intuitively feel when there's injustice. And that is a, a thing that you, you just, you have to have an outlet for. Like, you can't go unresolved. And so that's why people get so riled up on Twitter. That's why everyone's so angry about everything. There has to be an outlet for justice. Currently, politics is, is that for a lot of people. I think if we'd been having this conversation in 2012 and you said that kind of the central issue of our day might be the pursuit of truth, you would have thought, whoa, there went a thousand think pieces of evangelicalism on postmodernism, you know, from today of just, no, 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 we're a post-truth era. All of a sudden 2016 comes along and everybody cares about truth now. It's fascinating how quickly these things can change. Are you sure I can't bait you into something here, Tim? I know you want to jump in on this. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's not fair. All right, I'll get you some other way. Okay, um, let's, uh, we'll talk about some, let's bring this home a little bit, talk about personal spiritual disciplines and also how you see people coming to faith. Uh, so first, let's start with the disciplines. I'll start with you down there, Brett. What is the most helpful spiritual discipline that stokes your love for Jesus? when the pressures of our secular age press in on you. We're not immune to these trends. And that's one of the most important things to say in a Christ and culture class I was teaching in our church. I said, fundamentally, we must understand as Christians, these are not trends that are out there for those people that don't affect us in many ways just as much as as does them. So this challenge of loving Jesus in secular age is one that we face. How does Jesus help align your heart with his in this regard? For me, I think just the local church and showing up embodied physically in the local church is a huge, important discipline for me. I mean, I live a lot of my week in the online space in kind of the digital world. I'm a digital journalist. Um, So for me, coming to church week after week is a refreshing um, escape from the excarnation. You know, Taylor talks about the excarnation and how we're living in this kind of neo-gnostic disembodied world Um, and the church offers incarnation and enfleshed reality so coming to church week after week standing physically shoulder to shoulder with people who are very different from me who wouldn't know what twitter debate i was you know interested in the day before and wouldn't care but are there to worship jesus to take communion to take the physical you know communion the fact that it's a physical act is so amazing and refreshing in an age of excarnation. So I would say that for me, just the local church and the, the habits of that. Jen? I'm going to say church as well, oh but boy. I'm actually going to cite a different reason. I think church restores us. You know, I think the gospel essentially restores us. And so Monday through Saturday, we kind of live the stories of our neighborhoods and our city. Like we're just embattled because the story is, you know, your best life now and, you know, run fast so you can get, get all the toys. And, um, you know, it's certainly that in Toronto. And so I show up to church on Sunday kind of forgetting, you know, of course, I'm reading scripture throughout the week and and being restoried by that as well, but there's something incredibly powerful to hear other people rehearsing it, and especially on the weeks when I find it hard to believe. You know, sometimes there are weeks I show up to church and I forget my story, you know, I forget the true story of the world, and I don't even have faith to, to rehearse it myself, but I hear Brett next to me saying, it and and his faith kind of gives me faith and um, I 
can't do it without the people of God. And I think it's a reminder, too, as parents that even in seasons of life when it's super busy and children have activities, like getting them to church on Sunday is the way that they continue to be restoried. Tim? I, I still, <clears throat> I like immersion in the Psalms. Yeah. Uh, read Eugene Peterson's um, uh, introduction to the Psalms called Answering God, and his basic point is that we have a tendency in a self-expressive you know, uh, individualistic world to look at prayer as just a way of expressing ourselves toward God. And uh, he says, for example, children, if you just let children alone to express themselves, if you just say, hey, we don't want to, we just want them to, you know, uh, learn how to talk by themselves, they'll never learn. Uh, you, you learn how to talk because somebody's speaking to you, and then you learn to imitate them. And he said, Immers immers immersing yourself in the Psalms uh, teaches you how to talk about God. The other thing that's about the Psalms, especially if you do some Benedictine form like every three months or every month or you don't want to do like the Benedictines, which is every week. You get through all 150 Psalms. You either read them, chant them, recite them, or, or sing them. Uh, it's, it's such a big God you've got there. Yeah. So many. It, it, there's a, just a danger of making God into the God you want. Yeah. Uh, we, we have a tendency to say, uh, we, we've been taught to, dis, to determine what kind of self we want to be, and then you only choose and believe in things that fit in with the kind of self you want to think of yourself as being. And therefore, even our beliefs, even our beliefs in God tend to be a kind of, per, a kind of an accessory. It's like accessorizing your, your self-image. But the, the Psalms do not let that happen. The Psalms show you who God is. You let God speak into you. And then when you pray, if you're always praying back the Psalms or letting your prayer be uh, conditioned by the Psalms, guided by the Psalms, in many cases, you're just praying the Psalms back to God. It just changes you, and it, just, it, it, it it's, it's impossible to be an expressive individualist if you immerse yourself in the Psalms like that week after week, month after month, year after year. So I, I, I only said, I only was able to not say the, the Christian community and church because that was already said, but I would say that's another spiritual discipline crucial in our time. I don't know if I learned it from you or for somebody else, but my reading tends to be Psalm 130, 60, 90, 120, recycled through on that monthly basis along with one of the Proverbs, chapter of Proverbs, exactly, because I find there's nothing like the Psalms that just get me back there. So, um, did you have something else you wanted to say there? Okay. <laughs> so you had the mic already. So, all right, just got about three minutes left uh, before we wrap up here. Um, Tim, I'm going to start this question with you. What are some hopeful signs of people coming to faith in Christ in our secular age? Have you seen any of those trends change over the course of your ministry. Quickly, I'll say that in our context, we've seen a number of people come to faith. It is almost always community for them, a felt need of community. And they come in and they say, oh, you're not like those other people. You, you love me in ways that I haven't been loved before. And they want to know more about Jesus. And they see that connection to the gospel. Um, it's pretty simple, but that's been the most powerful tool in our context. What have you seen over the years, Tim? Uh, something similar. That, that, uh, yes, very secular people can come to faith in Christ, but it takes a great deal of patience and it takes relationship. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, Jen has already re, uh, referred to this, that we are used to doing, most of our evangelism assumes that people will uh, think that Christianity is a good thing, yeah. like, uh, like your barber. Yeah. In other words, there, in the past, there have been people who said, I'm not a Christian, but I do see that religion and Christianity is a good thing. Churches do good work. That's a very different culture than the culture that says it's really bad for you. Uh, and, and going to church, having a church isn't a good idea at all. It's bad for people. In that situation, the only way you draw people in is through long relationships. So, yeah, that, and that's how I see it happening. But not bringing people to big events where you hear the expert evangelist. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say creating context where curiosity is welcomed and where like doubt, maybe even there's hospitality for that. And that doesn't mean that we valorize doubt, but we have to just 
be hospitable to where people are. So in our church context, there's Q&A after the sermon, and that's always one of the most kind of spirit-filled moments, you know, as people just, and it's not even what is said so much as an environment that's created where we say, um, you, you get to be where you are, you get to interact with this, you get to engage your mind and your heart, you, and um, that's, your curiosity is welcome here. And so we're seeing a lot of people come to faith um, through that, you know, um, and also just, I think, through the invitation to be on a journey that may take some time to process intellectual doubts. Yeah, I, don't, I think I'd just reiterate some things that have already been said about community. I've seen that to be a, a, just the, the countercultural nature of Christian community increasingly in a disembodied, um, fragmented age. Um, but but yeah, also to Tim's point about just the long burn of relationship um, so with the barber, like, I'm going to continue to go to him and keep the conversation going. Like, now that I know he's sort of got this interest, you just have to kind of lean into that and, and trust that the spirit will work in his heart over time if it's his will. And all I can do is just keep the conversation going and keep living my life and living my witness as a Christian in, in relationship with him. Well, great. That's the end of our workshop here, our panel, Why We Love Jesus in a Secular Age. We hope that maybe we've even given you some book recommendations or some tips on how you can navigate this in our culture, even some ones you want to pick up there in the bookstore. But more importantly, we hope that we've stirred your faith and your hope in Christ and seeing the promise of what he's doing in our era. Please join me in thanking our panelists. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.